0: Hello, everybody. Thank you for spending, uh, we'll say, the next uh, 45 to 55 minutes with me. My name is Mike Mattis. I'm a solutions architect with AWS. Tomorrow is my two-year anniversary with the company. Uh, Pending the outcome of today's presentation, I'm hoping to make it to the two-year mark. Uh, So please give me positive feedback at the end. If not, please come see me. Um, So I'm based out of the DC area, support public sector customers, and I'd say for the first 10 to 12 years of my professional career, was built around Microsoft technologies, things like Active Directory, Exchange, SharePoint, uh, SMS, which is now System Center Config Manager, Operations Manager. Uh, So talk to you today about migrating some of those applications over to AWS. Uh, We'll cover uh, certain scenarios, maybe talk about order of operations, and then we'll get to some uh, licensing specifics, things to be aware of, uh, help customers save money. Okay. So I already talked about you know, order of operations, licensing. Uh, first off, why AWS for Microsoft applications? A lot of customers uh, don't necessarily uh, understand the capabilities that we provide to customers that are, uh, I'd say, unique to AWS that they may not get in their existing on-premises environments. And so we'll cover a little bit of that. I'll also talk about sequencing. You know, how do you migrate, uh, say, Exchange or SharePoint or, or uh, System Center Config Manager to AWS? You know, when you uh, put your clothes on in the morning to go to work, you don't put your shoes on before your socks. Okay, so when you're migrating systems to the cloud, you have to have a plan of operations just like you do when you put on your clothes in the morning. Okay, as I mentioned before, we'll talk about Microsoft licensing on AWS. Uh, There's a couple of tenancy options in AWS that people may not be aware of. And then there's, uh, you know, options to bring your own licenses for certain Microsoft products, depending on which tenancy you go into. And there's also options including VM import Uh, I'll talk about resources, other presentations that are here at reInvent. Some of them have occurred in the past. Some of them are coming up tomorrow. And then uh, we'll wrap up. So why AWS? Okay. So a lot of customers, you know, will be deployed across the globe. Okay. Big enterprises are not just based in the United States. Big enterprises are not based in one specific geographic region. And I think that's the, the value that AWS provides right out of the gate. Okay, we've got 16 regions across the world today. Uh, you can see, according to the diagram, we've got six more that are coming up uh, that, that we've announced. Okay, those little circles with the numbers in it, uh, those numbers represent availability zones. Okay, is everybody, you know, give me a show of hands. Is everybody confident what, what they understand availability zones are? Okay, so that's probably about 75, 85%. Uh, just real quick primer for those of you that don't know availability zones. Uh, each region is comprised of two or more AZs. Each AZ itself is one or more discrete physical data centers. Okay, so when we talk about deploying AW or deploying systems in a particular region, uh, you can split your application across multiple avail- availability zones to take advantage of, a H- of an HA architecture without having to you know go across the country or to to, uh, to another continent. Okay. We talk about flexible compute options, all right? EC2, Um, there's compute options here that were announced uh, just yesterday. Uh, So we talk about uh, C5s came up uh, just within the past month. We talk about H1s, which I think were announced just yesterday. Uh, There's also bare metal instances uh, that was announced yesterday at reInvent as well. So if you're looking for general purpose compute, and I'd say a lot of the, the basic Microsoft uh, building blocks, whether it's Active Directory or uh, you know, SharePoint server, have a good mix of CPU and RAM. And for those, I'd say the M4s are probably a good choice. If you're talking about relational databases, okay, you probably want to go towards the R3s or the R4s. Okay, Those give you a better mix of, uh, or a better ratio of RAM to CPU. Okay? So if you're you know, deploying SQL Server, SQL Server, uh, per my understanding, is licensed per socket. You can actually save money by deploying on a system that has more RAM, which SQL Server will chew as much RAM as you give it um, if you're deploying on a system that has a lot of RAM, but maybe not as much CPU. Okay. Accelerated computing. Uh, These are things uh, we'll talk about P2s, G3s. Okay. Those are GPU backed instances. We also have F1s. Those are uh, FPGA backed instances. Uh, I3s, so those are instance types that we have that come with a lot of ephemeral disk, a uh, high number of IOPS associated with it, and then we also have D2s, and D2s are for dense storage. If you're you know, doing stuff that uh, moves a lot of uh, you know, terabytes or gigabytes of data around, D2s are a good option for you. So we'll get right down to the game-changing features, what I call game-changing features in AWS, why customers want to deploy in AWS. Um, the first couple are, are very tightly coupled. All right, we will mention dedicated hosts and dedicated instances. So there's three tenancy modes in AWS. If you're launching a new EC2 instance on the console, by default dedicated or uh, default tenancy is selected. That means you're running on hardware that any other AWS customer could be running on, okay? If you have compliance regimes that you need to meet, if you have uh, licensing restrictions based on, you know, whether it's Microsoft or other third-party independent software vendors that you have to meet, uh, you may need to deploy on dedicated infrastructure. Okay? Dedicated infrastructure may mean hardware that is dedicated to your AWS account. Okay? That's what dedicated hosts and dedicated instances provide you. Okay? That is hardware that is for your AWS account. Okay? The difference between the two is if you're deploying on dedicated hosts, you get the full visibility of which instances you can deploy on that particular um, host, host system within AWS. Okay? If you're running in dedicated instances, you could have instances that you're launching in default tenancy that could land on that, on that uh, particular piece of hardware that is also running with instances that you've selected as dedicated instances. Okay? VM import export. Okay? Customers wanna bring their existing Windows licenses to AWS. Okay? It's, a, it's a great way to save money. We have a tool called VM import. You you download the AWS CLI. If a lot of you come from Microsoft backgrounds, uh, there's PowerShell commandlets to do it as well, okay? So you can export your your on-premises image as an OVA, import it into an AWS S3 bucket. You can then import that, register it as an AMI within AWS, and then you can launch that, okay? The advantage there is you're paying for just the EC2 time and not for the built-in license cost of the Windows operating system, okay? There's a slide later on in the deck that talks about a a particular use case where you want to use VM import, okay? EC2 Systems Manager, is everybody familiar with EC2 Systems Manager? Yes, okay? All right, so EC2 Systems Manager, I think, is one of the hidden gems within the AWS tool belt, okay? You have EC2 run command, okay? You can run PowerShell scripts, uh, Windows. You can, run, uh, you can run scripts against uh, Linux hosts. You can also do, uh, you know, there's EC2 parameter store. Uh, there's also this capability that just came out recently called uh, AWS private link, okay? So previously, if you were running in an AWS VPC and you wanted to communicate with EC2 systems manager APIs, you had to egress your VPC. Okay, When we talk about egressing your VPC, we're talking about going out to the public Internet and then coming back in and hitting uh, EC2 Systems Manager APIs. So PrivateLink allows you to have uh, a E&I with private IP space inside your VPC, that way you can access EC2 Systems Manager or any other AWS resource without having to traverse the public Internet. Okay, I think that's an interesting feature. Elastic volumes. So I'd say within the past year, we released a feature of EBS, and EBS is is one of the core building blocks of EC2. It's block storage for your for your uh, EC2 instances, elastic volumes. So no longer do you actually have to stop an instance to increase the volume size. Okay. So use case for Microsoft workloads is a lot of customers that are doing Exchange migrations. If you are working in an organization that has uh, two gig or five gig or even 25 gig mailboxes, okay. A lot of Exchange servers require anywhere from terabytes uh, to tens of terabytes of disk space, okay? If you're migrating 50 to 100 mailboxes a time, you don't necessarily need to provision an EBS volume on day one that has 16 terabytes of storage, okay? You can start with maybe two terabytes, migrate 500 users with their 10 or 15 gig mailboxes. If that's successful, go ahead and increase the volume size, okay? Remember, EBS is charged based on what you allocate, not necessarily what you use. So if you start small, you can go as your migration uh, process uh, you know, goes along in, in the future. RDS for SQL Server. So RDS uh, is our managed relational database service, so if customers don't want to have to worry about uh, taking down time or, or you know, the DBA doesn't want to have to spend his time in the evenings, his or her time in the evenings backing up or patching SQL Server. So we have RDS, it's a managed database offering. So SQL Server, we have Oracle, we have MySQL, Postgres, Aurora, and MariaDB as well. Okay, we also have Amazon Workspaces. Is anybody a heavy user of Workspaces? I, I live and die by Workspaces. That is, that is my favorite AWS service by far. Okay, uh, a lot of my work is done inside my Workspace. It, it's it's fantastic. You can think of workspaces as a as a as a way of delivering virtual desktops without having a virtual desktop infrastructure to provision. Uh, I have customers that ask me why, what's what's the value prop of workspaces? Uh, you don't need an infrastructure to deploy an infrastructure is generally my first answer. Okay, with workspaces you can just go in, provision desktops. You don't need a provisioning server or anything else like that. Uh, there's no you know mucky third-party licensing costs that you have to incur. Okay. It's a per-user basis. It gives customers a lot of flexibility. Okay, AWS Config. Uh, A lot of my customers are into continuous monitoring. All right, if you're uh, working in public sector or you're working in a highly regulated industry, uh, you have to answer to uh, compliance regimes. You have to verify that the system that you have on day two looks like it did on day one, or the system that you have on day 27 looks like it does on day one. Okay, I've also worked on a lot of customers in the past where I'll do design and build documentation, I'll create this pristine architecture guide, it'll get deployed in production, and then two weeks later, if there's a disaster happens, there's been system changes that have happened, maybe someone added a network card, maybe someone added an additional disk volume to it, and there's no way of knowing that unless it's actually captured in the build documentation. Okay, AWS config allows you to monitor your AWS resources and track state change over time. So you can think of this as, you know, you can create a policy that says all my EC2 instances have one network interface attached to it. If someone attaches a network interface to an EC2 instance, I can get an SNS notification, okay? That is, that is highly, highly valuable. Okay, how many times have you in the past gone back and said, who did this? When did they do this? Okay, AWS config actually gives you that. Uh, the other valuable thing that AWS config gives you is it actually integrates with dedicated hosts, okay? So AWS Config, when I talk about integrating with dedicated hosts, it's able to track when EC2 instances were started and stopped and terminated on dedicated hosts, okay? So that's useful for license compliance. You can go back and you can present a compliance report that says, hey, on this particular date, we only had this number of EC2 instances running on this particular piece of hardware, okay? AWS Directory Service for Microsoft AD. That is our managed directory service, okay? If you are looking for a dev test environment and you don't want to have to go ahead, you know, spin up an EC2 instance, you know, join a domain, create a new forest, give it a NetBIOS name and all that stuff, and then manage all of that, we provide you an option that'll spin up two domain controllers and separate availability zones, so for a high availability. If one of those EC2 instances fails, we'll recover it, spin up another EC2 instance in its place, so we're doing a managed directory service to provide high availability. A lot of customers are getting bootstrapped on AWS Directory Service because they simply don't have the, the resources to manage directory services, and they don't want to deal with that because that's not their core business. Server Migration Service is an interesting one. and this, this is, uh, I'd say, within the past year as well. Server Migration Service allows you to replicate uh, volumes from your on-premises infrastructure into AWS. Now, the way this works in vSphere environments is we provide you an OVA. It's free BSD-based. You deploy this OVA into your vCenter infrastructure, so if you have five vCenters, you need five OVAs, one for each vCenter. It's then able to do an inventory report, so it gathers inventory about what's going on in your vCenter environment. It will create snapshots, delete snapshots, and help you replicate data from your on-premises environment up into the cloud. And what it's doing is it's taking those server volumes inside vCenter, replicating them to the cloud, and then uh, registering those as AMIs. So you can then take those AMIs and launch EC2 instances off of those. And there's other services that I could mention here, uh, but this slide is reasonably full as is. So two case studies real quick, and I I cherry-picked these because I'm familiar with with both of these uh, systems, systems being SharePoint in this particular case. So Dill Foods was looking for a place uh, to host its SharePoint sites, okay? They chose AWS due to cost savings, and for operational efficiency. Now, they're saving more than a third of a million dollars a year based on migrating SharePoint to AWS. Uh, I don't know about you, but a third of a million dollars sounds like a, a, a large chunk of change to me. That's, that's something that is, that is really tangible, and I'm sure that Dole Foods can put that cost savings to, to better use and maybe uh, improving other areas in their environment. Okay, Delaware North, uh, different Microsoft product, so they're doing uh, Windows Server. Obviously, Windows Server is the foundation for all Microsoft systems. Uh, SQL Server, and then System Center Configuration Manager. Is everybody familiar with SCCM? Software distribution, asset management, the whole nine yards? Yep. So they chose to run System Center Config Manager in AWS. Now, they're projected to save $3.5 million over five years. That's another 700000 a year. Uh, this is This is not dollars. This is... This is significant change that customers are saving by moving these systems to AWS. Okay, order of operations. As I said before, you don't put on your shoes before you put on your socks. What does every Microsoft service depend on? This is where I ask for audience input. Active directory, there you go. So. Why might a customer deploy Exchange before they deploy Active Directory? I honestly have no idea, okay? Active Directory is very simple to deploy in AWS, okay? You can choose to either migrate your existing domain controllers in AWS, and by migrate, what you would be doing is standing up new EC2 instances, running a DC promo, or new EC2 instances, domain join, DC promo, replicate the dit, across a VPN link or Direct Connect and then tear down your on-premises CC2 instances, or you could deploy a brand new Active Directory domain and create trust relationships with your on-premises domain with what you have in AWS. Okay, the choice is yours based on your business model. Okay, we're not preventing you from doing anything that you wouldn't normally be able to do with Active Directory. Okay, if you wanted to create a forced trust, if you want to create a, a one-way trust with selective authentication between what you have in AWS and what you have on-premises, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Bring your existing group policies. Okay, so if you're standing up a new domain, but you want your new domain to look exactly like your on-premises domain, you can do a GP export and a GP import to bring those group policies into your AWS Active Directory domain. So this is a simple guideline, this is where most customers start with. They're in a single Amazon region, single AWS region. You have your customer network down in the cloud bottom, okay, that's, we'll say that's, that's on-premises. You can connect via a VPN tunnel or AWS Direct Connect to your resources in AWS. Okay, You have domain controllers, you want them sitting in different availability zones. Why different AZs? Because you want to design for failure. All right, you don't want to deploy one domain controller in AWS, you want to deploy two. Okay. You deploy those domain controllers in different availability zones. You have them in private subnets. They're able to uh, replicate Active Directory, site topology replication, all that good stuff uh, with your on-premises domain. Okay. One other option you might have here is you could define all of your VPCs within AWS as an Active Directory site. Okay. Is everybody familiar with AD sites and services? Okay. You can define AD sites and services such that any resource that you have within the subnets that are defined within your AWS IP ranges authenticates and talks to the domain controllers that are on, in AWS as opposed to reaching back over VPN tunnel to talk to your resources on-premises. Okay? So it's very important when you're doing uh, Microsoft work in AWS that you're making sure that your site topology and your site link costs are defined appropriately such that you're not reaching back to resources across a VPN tunnel. Okay. This is still a single region. Okay? Now here we're deploying multiple VPCs with Active Directory. Why m- might one want to do that? Okay? VPC peering here. VPC peering has a 125 VPC limit. Okay? For large enterprises that may have 200 to 300 to 400 AWS accounts, they may want to have separate VPCs such that they can create a hub-and-spoke topology such that they have domain controllers of one VPC that are peered with 100 other VPCs domain controllers in another VPC that are appear with another 100 VPCs, okay? Then you can peer those domain controller VPCs together. That way, all traffic stays in AWS, and you're creating this mesh topology where everything is, is replicating, everything is authenticating to resources that are in AWS. Multiple regions. Okay, this slide just got interesting due to a, a, an announcement that we had yesterday. Uh, if, you're, if you followed that announcement, we're now... Uh, We have available cross-region VPC peering, which I think is a super awesome feature. Okay, it's in our public documentation now, so what you're able to do is that inter-region connectivity between VPCs, you're able to have that traverse the Amazon network, the AWS backbone, so it doesn't egress to the public Internet. Okay? Very awesome feature. So if you have a global operation, you have resources in the United States and resources in Asia or resources in Europe, you can create this this peering uh, point between, region, uh, between VPCs cross-region and not egress to the public internet. So previously, what you had to do is you had to have a VPN tunnel set up between those regions, like a transit VPC or some other you know, EC2 instance running uh, you know, a VPN stack on top of it. What next to migrate after Active Directory? Okay. For most Microsoft systems, they write to a, a back-end relational database. Okay, so SQL Server, super important. Uh, A lot of customers overlook SQL Server. I know uh, 10, 15 years ago when I first got started on SQL Server, um, I was given the task to set up SharePoint in in my environment. And so I became a DBA by accident. Okay, a lot of people start off that way. They just pop in the SQL Server DBD, next, 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 next. Okay, then they're backing up and patching SQL Server. Okay, so for this point, we're talking... You know, SharePoint, Skype for Business, all the System Center Suite, all depend on SQL Server, okay? There's a couple different options for migrating SQL Server workloads to AWS. I'll bring up a table here on the next slide, and I'll talk to one in particular. So we have backup and restore. Okay, backup and restore. You can use SQL Server Management Studio to back up your database. It'll create a BAK file. You can take that, upload it to S3. You can then take it out of S3 and download it onto an EC2 instance, okay, and restore it that way. Uh, for large databases, I had a, a colleague just mention this recently. You could use AWS Snowball. Okay, if you have a two terabyte database and you have, uh, we'll say, not great connectivity, you don't want to replicate two terabyte database over the, over the, uh, a, a slow, slow WAN link. Okay, so for that case, you may want to use a Snowball. Okay, what you'll do is you'll create a BAK file, dump that onto a Snowball. Snowball will ingest it into an S3 bucket that you specify, and then you can pull it out of S3 and restore it to your EC2 instance. Okay, there's a couple different options here. Uh, I'll also highlight AWS DMS, Database Migration Service at the bottom. Okay, so that's another service. It allows you to uh, migrate databases from on-premises to AWS, from AWS back to on-premises. You can have RDS as a target. You can have SQL Server running on EC2 as a target, okay? The cross-engine column there, you'll see yes for SCT. That stands for Schema Conversion Tool. Okay, so if anybody's familiar with the DMS feature, Schema Conversion Tool allows you to migrate or transition from one relational database type to another. So if you wanted to go from Postgres to SQL Server or SQL Server to Postgres or MySQL to Oracle or Oracle to MySQL, the Schema Conversion Tool will, will do an analysis and to determine how much of a heavy lift it is to migrate between database uh, platforms. So in this example, we'll talk about the value of DMS and its usefulness in migrating, say, a SQL server system over to AWS. So your existing users are hitting a database, resides inside your your facility, okay? But you have an Amazon EC2 instance running in AWS. How are you gonna get that data over there, okay? Like I said before, you could do a backup and restore, you could use a snowball. In this particular example, we use DMS, okay? DMS will start a replication instance, okay? it will then connect to your source and target databases. Okay? It will that you then have the option to select the tables, the schemas, the databases that you want to replicate between your on-premises environment and AWS. So you have that choice. You can to pick which what's replicated and when. Okay? DMS is going to create the tables, load the data, it'll keep the two in sync. Okay? This does not mean that you have to switch over as soon as all the data is migrated. Okay? If you think about it, it's hard to predict when data will move across the network, okay? especially for a large relational database, especially if you're doing um, something that is highly transactional. So if your migration finishes, if, you're, if your database is fully ready on a Tuesday, it may be a business practice to cut over a migration on a Friday night, that way you have the whole weekend to recover in the event that things go wrong. So in that case, you could leave your DMS instance running, still replicating data from Tuesday through Friday, and then Friday, you could do the DNS switcheroo. Okay, You could pull your users over, just doing like a simple CNAME change or a DNS update, and then your users are hitting the, resource, the same resource in AWS. What to migrate after SQL Server? Well, once you've migrated Active Directory and you've moved SQL Server over, uh, you have the full gamut uh, of Microsoft systems that you could work with. Okay? Uh, One thing to consider here is Exchange does not have a dependency on SQL Server. So if your staff allows it and you have a dedicated team for Exchange, they could migrate Exchange to AWS independent of SQL Server. So I don't want you to think that SQL Server is a prerequisite for Exchange. You could certainly go Active Directory, SQL, and Exchange, and then after SQL Server is done, then you could fan out to SharePoint, Skype for Business, and the System Center products. Okay? Good. now for the fun stuff microsoft licensing it's, um i say it a bit in jest okay so there's a couple different options for microsoft licensing in aws we provide amis those amis include windows licenses okay so when you're paying 10 cents an hour for an ec2 instance of a particular type that includes not only the compute cap- baseline capability but the windows license as well okay We have AMIs for Windows Server, okay, all the way up to Windows Server 2016. We have AMIs that include SQL Server. Uh, Those of you familiar with SQL Server will know that Microsoft released SQL Server 2017 uh, a couple months ago. We have AMIs with Windows 2016 and SQL Server 2017 all ready for customers to go ahead and launch. Okay. If you want to save money and bring your existing licenses, say you're a large enterprise and you have a multi-million dollar license agreement with Microsoft where you're getting the licenses at a severe discount, then you can use the, that ELA and you could potentially migrate those licenses to AWS. Okay, if you have software assurance, we have dedicated instances, we have dedicated hosts. You could deploy existing software that you already have licensed onto AWS if you don't have software assurance. If you, do, if you do have software assurance, if your licenses are eligible for license mobility, and license mobility is a benefit included in software assurance, and, and again, license mobility is, is specific to each Microsoft product, so if you're talking about your ELA, you certainly want to review the contents within your ELA to make sure that the, the software technologies that you want to move over to AWS are eligible for license mobility, uh, but if they are, then you can migrate those over, and those can be deployed in default tenancy. Okay, so as I mentioned before, our licenses fully managed, already activated, all versions of Windows Server 2016 is the latest. Okay, supported versions of SQL Server. All right, we've already got SQL Server 2017 and Windows 2016 AMIs. Uh, the hourly instance, as I mentioned, includes the cost of the Windows and the SQL Server license. Okay, there's no need to buy software assurance if you're using our AMIs. Okay, there's also no need to buy CALs. And obviously each EC2 instance that runs Windows includes two RDS, that's Remote Desktop Services, CAL's out of the box. So this is a valuable slide. I've referenced this slide uh, many, many times in conversations with my customers. Okay, when they talk about saving money, and we're talking about customers with big license agreements with Microsoft, and while they're already running an AWS, they wanna potentially save money. So right now, if they're launching EC2 instances and they're using RAMIs, they're paying for the license. If you want to save money, bring your existing Windows Server licenses to AWS. Okay, You can use import image. Import image is is a part of the VM import-export toolset. Okay, And for that, you can run on dedicated hosts. Again, dedicated hosts, it's physical hardware that AWS owns and operates that is uh, restricted to just your AWS account. Okay. If you're talking about SQL Server, if you have license mobility or license included, you can run it in default tenancy. If not, you could run it in dedicated instances or dedicated hosts. Okay, that third row right there, other Microsoft products, this could be things like Exchange, Microsoft Office, SharePoint, uh, Skype for Business. Okay, definitely review your, your ELA details. Make sure that you're doing the right things and that you're, you're, you're able to save money where you can. Okay, MSDN. I have an MSDN subscription. I cannot run in default tenancy according to the MSDN terms and conditions. Okay, I can run in dedicated instances or dedicated host cell. So, resources. I'll point you to our FAC. Our FAC page is up on awsamazon.com/windows/fac. Okay, Microsoft licensing. So that licensing page has a lot more detail and meat to it than what's included in just this 60-minute presentation. So I'll definitely point you to that. That last link right there, so uh, who has launched a quick start here? Give me a show of hands. Okay, so we've got about probably five to 10. So quick starts are built by AWS, and they're intended to help get our customers bootstrapped with deploying uh, certain technologies, software applications running on AWS. So we have a quick start called uh, Enterprise Accelerator for Microsoft Servers. Okay, This Enterprise Accelerator includes uh, remote desktop gateway, Active Directory, Exchange, SQL Server, uh, Skype for Business, and I believe it includes ADFS as well. So what this will do do is it will deploy, with the CloudFormation template, all those resources into your AWS account so that you can kick the tires and get an understanding for how powerful CloudFormation is and what does a highly available SharePoint architecture look like in AWS. So it'll deploy two WFEs. In front of that, it'll have an ELB. Okay. It'll have two application servers sitting in different availability zones, two SQL servers uh, with always-on availability groups configured, such that you're replicating data from one AZ to another. Okay, If you have an EC2 instance running SQL server in one AZ go down, your always-on availability group is keeping you protected by having it running in the other AZ. Okay. Related sessions. So some of these happened in the past. Uh, I do wanna call out, there is a workshop based on this session. One ran on Monday, there's another running tomorrow. So there's a presentation with that session and there's also a hands-on exercise. So if you look for um, a similarly named session, but it's a workshop, uh, that's available, I believe, at 11.30 tomorrow, okay? I also wanna call your attention, we have a session called WIN 201. It's presented by Sandy Carter. She's the AWS Vice President of Enterprise Applications. She's giving a State of the Union address tomorrow Uh, on what our strategy is with Microsoft running on AWS, as well as our partnership with VMware. So I definitely urge you to attend that. Okay? So in summary, plan your dependency chain. Okay? Understand what systems you rely on. Okay? Don't deploy Exchange without deploying Active Directory. Don't try and deploy SCCM or SharePoint in AWS if it's writing to a SQL server across a VPN tunnel. That is the We laugh, but, you know, it happens, right? So understand your system dependencies, okay? Know how Microsoft licensing works. We want you to save money, okay? We also have a tool called Trusted Advisor that will tell you when you could have the potential to save money if you're running on EC2 instances that are too large, okay? So Microsoft licensing, bringing those licenses to AWS is another way to save money. We want our customers to do that, okay? Uh, Last but not least, I thank you for coming out. I did want to keep this reasonably short because I know it's getting late in the day. I know everybody's hungry, and I know there are afternoon and evening activities that everybody wants to get to. So with that, I thank you very much, and please remember to fill out the survey.